Good morning, everyone. Uh, mistake I made on the board, Jim. Sorry, Jim, but Jim doesn't have the closing prayer. Uh, it's Paul Kelsey, just a error in typing. Uh, you good with that, Paul? Yep, cool. Uh, texted that to the guys ahead of time, just kind of made a mistake on the board. Um, one other thing, uh, Jim, did you want to talk to the guys about the carpet thing? Yeah, so guys will get together just for a minute after the assembly, um, either up here or in the back. Uh, we're getting the carpet redone in here. Um, it's old and nasty, and uh, Jim got a quote for replacing it. So we'll, we'll just talk about that uh, for a second afterwards. Um, we're going to be talking about, in the lesson this morning, uh, something that has really impacted me to see in the ministry of Jesus. It's been kind of a uh, an anchoring reference point for me when thinking about the subject of Bible authority. Um, I hope it's impactful for you. This is hopefully going to be a simple lesson, uh, and I hope that the applications and the principles are things that can just be strengthening, but I hope that some of the things we'll look at are also very convicting um, and help to kind of draw out that there's there's a lot to the subject, especially when we relate it to Jesus, um, that really, no matter where we are, uh, can be very challenging to really personally and, and properly consider uh, I want you to think about what authority is, right? It's probably helpful to define what can be an ambiguous word. And I'll define it first the way that I think it's, it is biblically, and then I'll give the Webster dictionary definition. But I think biblically, when we're talking about God's authority, we're really talking about his right to rule. That inherently because of who God is, God inherently, he has the right to rule. Uh, we see that in visions of God throughout the Bible. About a month ago, I did a lesson on Revelation 4 and 5, and we see in Revelation 4, God is pictured on a throne, ruling. And the throne is mentioned 11 times in a very short chapter. It's very heavily emphasized that God is an authoritative figure. So authority is not just kind of a theological concept. Uh, it's, it's been helpful for me, for me to realize that authority is central to who God is, and so how I approach authority in relation to God, it ultimately says a lot about how I view God and what my attitude is toward God. Authority related to God is also his right to dictate who I ought to be, how I ought to think, and what I ought to do. So again, not just what I ought to do externally, but who I ought to be from the inside. God has the right to dictate the way that I think, my values, my preferences, the way that I think about people but obviously what I, what I ought to do as well. And God's authority also implies that he has the power to enforce his will, meaning that God has the right to punish those who disobey his will. And he also has the power, on a positive sense, to reward and to bless those who submit to him and do his will. And the Webster definition, I think, is similar to this. It's, it's the power to command thought, opinion, or behavior. Uh, and the reason I went through it biblically first is I think when we're talking about God's authority, there's a maybe a bit of a broader sense, but uh, the Webster definition, again, the power to command thought, opinion, or behavior. So beyond defining it, I want you to think, how important is authority generally, right? Uh, I want to illustrate this with my time in Alabama. Uh, in Alabama... I was really shocked by how important college football was to the culture there. Uh, the Auburn, like, Alabama college football thing, 
it's it's like this rabid craze. People decorate their houses for the teams. You just you literally can't escape it. I, I made it out of Alabama without ever picking a side. I was told I could not leave until I did. I didn't. Anyway, it was really fun watching games with brethren because they would get super passionate about it. And a part of how they would get passionate was a matter of authority. The referee would make a call that a brother or sister in Christ would disagree with, and they're yelling at the screen, disagreeing with the call that was made. But does their call, I mean, the person watching TV, do they really ultimately have any authority on what's going on? They don't. They might wish they did. They might think they did. They, they don't have any authority, right? And the frustration can be is sometimes, you know, there's disagreements because genuinely they made a wrong call. They did not exercise their authority correctly. But again, in a game like football, for instance, how important is authority to that game? You know, what if there was no authority, no referee, there was no rules? Uh, what if the players completely disregarded all the calls that a referee made? You know, how important is it to something like that, that there is some sense of authority and also in agreement, we are going to follow the rules of the game and respect the calls made by the authoritative figure. How much more in the kingdom of God? You know, we are citizens of a kingdom. And a kingdom implies that there is a ruler and that the citizens of a kingdom respect the rule of that figure. So if authority is important in school or work, wherever we may be by context, how much more is it important in the kingdom of God? The reality is, though, uh, we cannot ignore the fact that religiously, there are so many groups and so many individuals who believe so many different things about the Bible. I've studied with more different kinds of Christian religion than I even knew existed a couple years ago. Uh, I've studied with religions where I'm not sure even what to call it. I've studied with people who are Baptist, Lutheran, Catholic, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, etc., etc., and they all believe various things about the Bible. And although it may be too simple to say this, the reality is it comes down to how they understand authority and how they find precedent for the authority of what they do. And ultimately, do people have authority? And are they giving authority to groups or people, or are they really just depending on the Bible as their source of authority? And in any Bible study I have, that is always what it inevitably comes down to, is whether or not someone will really trust what the Bible says, even when that contradicts what their pastor, their church, their family believes, right? That's always where the rubber meets the road. John 1.18, before we get into some of the other things on the, on the board here, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, referring to Jesus. He has explained him. The reality is, without Jesus, we don't know God. Without Jesus, we do not understand how to approach God. Jesus teaches us how to respect God, how to know God, how to live with God, how to have fellowship with God, how to please God. And so the idea of this lesson, this doesn't cover all of the angles that I think are important with a subject like authority. But the point of this lesson is to see how did Jesus treat the authority of his father in his ministry? And I want to argue however Jesus thought about God's authority, that better be the way that we think about it too. Because we need to be disciples of Jesus, not just following his example in terms of things he did, but more than anything, his attitude toward the Father. However Jesus thought about the Father, we've got to emulate that and adapt that as well. And that's what we're going to see. So we're going to start by just kind of surveying these passages here in yellow. 
the idea is John's gospel particularly, there is kind of a unique aspect to this gospel. I mean, it's a unique gospel in general compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But one of the things that's unique about John, and this was something that was shown to me by an older preacher, and this really, really impacted me when he showed me this, is that John records Jesus consistently emphasizing his care towards his father's authority. And if you've never seen these scriptures before, please take note of them and just really remember them and consider what Jesus is saying here. And again, this is a consistent emphasis through the gospel. What we're going to do is I want to just survey these verses, just kind of read through them, just make some brief points about what I think we can learn from these passages particularly. And then what I want to do in the second part of the lesson is in each of these places, there's actually a conflict that is the reason why Jesus is emphasizing his care toward God's authority. And in the second part of the lesson, I want to go back and look at in a little more detail What's going on in the context that helps us learn, I think, um, more lessons, uh, more practical lessons about issues we face when dealing with God's authority, personal issues that we face. So we're going to start in John 5 and look at verse 19. This is where Jesus is talking to the Jews after he had just healed a sick man who'd been sick for over 30 years at the pool of Bethesda, Bethsaida. But in verse 19, Jesus responding to the Jews says this. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. In principle, did Jesus consider God's example to be an authoritative thing for him. That if he saw an example from God, that that was something worth imitating. Did he restrict himself to that? Verse 30 of the same chapter, he makes another statement similar. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. just, Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 30. Did Jesus ever do something out of just sheer presumption? Was anything Jesus doing just him assuming in action, or as it says here, acting on his own initiative or acting on his own will? Jesus only did what he saw the Father do and what he heard the Father explicitly say. He does not seek his own will. Chapter 8. And again, you're going to notice a lot of consistency in these statements Jesus is continuing to make here. Chapter 8, 26 through 29. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So verse 29, he says, he always does the things that are pleasing to the father. Verse 28, how does he do that? What does that mean in practicality, realistically? It means he speaks what the father tells him to speak. 
He does what the Father reveals that he needs to do or examples that God has left. The idea is everything Jesus did, it's not just the idea that I think God spoke directly to Jesus, as I think Jesus implies Father did, but that everything Jesus did was genuinely traceable to the Old Testament. Everything Jesus did, you could understand it by pinpointing he's doing this, and this is either pointed to, prophesied, illustrated, demonstrated, somewhere in the Old Testament, everything Jesus does has a scriptural precedent attached to it. Look at chapter 12, 49 through 50. And again, you'll notice a consistency here. Uh, Chapter 12, 49 through 50, the end of the scripture reading. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. When we're dealing with biblical matters, how should we handle that? Should we speak only just as God has spoken? What does Jesus show here? What what example did he leave? How did he handle that? Look at chapter 14, finally, verse 31, and then we'll think about some lessons that I think are important to learn from his example here. Uh, We'll start verse 30 since it's kind of coming in the middle of a sentence. Um, But this is a more intimate conversation with his disciples before his crucifixion. I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the father, I do exactly as the father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. If we try to do exactly what God commands... Does that make us legalistic Pharisees or does that make us like Jesus? Something that I I used to run into this more. I think it was maybe a more popular thing in Minnesota when I lived there, Um, a little bit in Alabama, but I heard it a lot in Minnesota, that as soon as you would try to advocate actually doing what the Bible specifically says, you would usually hear the term, well, that's legalistic. You know, that's rule-based. But look again, chapter 14, verse 31. How did Jesus feel about the commandments of the Father? What was Jesus' ambition with the commandments of the Father? Does strict obedience to the revealed word of God make us pharisaical or make us like Jesus? And a misunderstanding I think people have, were the Pharisees really truly obedient to the will of God? A lot of these statements in John that we've looked at are conflicts Jesus is having with the Pharisees, with the Jews, because they're not actually being obedient and they're really just ultimately self-deceived and dishonest with themselves and not willing to face the fact that they are actually not really obedient to the Father. Jesus strove to do exactly what God commanded him to do. And in the first half of verse 31, what did this demonstrate about his relationship with the Father? It was to demonstrate that he loved the Father. Therefore, he did exactly what was commanded. And obviously, what's coming up here is the cross. You know, that Jesus is not just talking about sacrificing at the temple, as the old law said, but he's talking about giving his own will to the point of death. That's how we know he truly loved the Father, that he was willing to be obedient even to the point of death on the cross. All right. Some principles that I think are important. And again, I know these things are very simple, but I think they're profound, despite how simple they are. And even if they're just reminders, I think these are very important, very powerful reminders. Jesus never spoke or acted on his own initiative. Like I said earlier, there was always a clear precedent for everything he taught 
and everything he did, everything in Jesus's life had a reference point within scripture. When I use the word precedent, by the way, this might be a word, I don't know, I was talking to Eva about the lesson yesterday. Um, she said precedent wasn't a word she hears very much. But a precedent is something done or said that may serve as an example or rule to authorize or justify a subsequent action. Uh, I think precedent kind of encapsulates all the ideas of communication, whether that's telling something instructively, showing an example, or making some kind of implication. The idea is it's a precedent, right? Something's been communicated in some way that shows that you have a reason to justify doing something. Jesus always had precedent for his teaching. What should we do with that? I think the, the logical step is we need to be very careful that personally we try as we sung to do all things in the name of the Lord. There should not just be precedent for what we do here at assemblies, but for Jesus, the authority of God and the reference point for his life was in everything he did. It was his attitude, his love, the way he treated people, his habits on a daily basis. Authority must go further than just things we do sometimes or group activity. However, we need to be really careful that we are very certain that what we are doing as a church, that there is clear precedent in the Bible for what we are doing as a church. And so the precedent, again, the biblical instruction or example or implication, there needs to be clear precedent for everything we do as a church or personally. Just a verse that John also wrote, 2 John 9, you don't need to turn here as I'll just read it and reference it. John also said this, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. That's a verse that I heard um, quoted a lot growing up by brethren who sometimes I think were overly strict with the application of that. And I think in the midst of the topic of authority, just like with football games, whatever, people abuse authority. People abuse their view of biblical authority, but that does not change the importance and I would say even the strictness we are to have with the word of God. The reality is anyone who goes too far and they are not abiding in the doctrine of Christ, if there is no precedent for what a church or individual is doing, then it's not from God. Number two, Jesus had an obedient-oriented mentality. And this is, uh, I think, in John chapter 14, verse 31. This just simplifies things, right? There are so many things that when God communicates it, it's very straightforward. And so it's just a matter of, am I willing to obey what it is he's teaching? Jesus said this in John 7, 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. Let me read that again. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God and whether I speak for myself. You hear what Jesus is saying? That if you want to understand the authority behind my teaching, do it. You'll understand it. Do you know why people struggle so much with authority, biblical authority? Why people struggled so much in John's gospel with really hearing what Jesus had to say? They just weren't willing to do what he said. It's amazing how much more simple things are when, like the song we sing, we really, truly are willing to just trust and obey. That when God gives us an instruction, we aren't looking for loopholes around it or trying to play games with it, but when he speaks and speaks clearly and directly, 
We just want to hear and listen and obey it. That simplifies everything. It really does. And to Jesus, God's authority was deeply personal. And I think we see that through these things that we surveyed. Jesus was jealous for God's authority. It mattered to him. And again, this wasn't just about Jerusalem at the place where the priests would be and and acts of worship would be happening. Authority was something that Jesus constantly was thinking about. It was something he was ready to talk about. He was ready to give an answer for why he was doing what he was doing when it didn't make sense or even when it seemed wrong to others who cared about God and his authority. The closer we are to Jesus, the more authority will matter to us. When I'm studying with someone and they're not very concerned about authority or about the authority of what their church does or what they believe, what that communicates to me is they ultimately don't really know Jesus. They may have a concept of Jesus, but we got to go way further than just some kind of ambiguous concept of who Jesus is. We really need to know him. And what John is inviting us to have is a deep, clear knowledge of who Jesus is. If Jesus takes authority as seriously as what we read, then what kind of attitude should we have about that, right? And what does it say about us when we are not jealous for the authority of God, when we think that's a a boring subject or we just don't like talking about it, right? We should have the kind of attitude like Jesus where it's something we want to talk about, we want to think about it, where it's very personal to us as well. So let's go back now and kind of look through these sections and kind of broaden this a little bit by thinking about some conflicts Jesus had with the Jews uh, that kind of were the platform for why he said the things that we've looked at. So in John chapter 5, 15 through 18, if you'll go back there, uh, Jesus heals a blind man again at a, at a pool within Jerusalem. Uh, in verse, in verse uh, 5, he'd been sick for 38 years. And Jesus knew he'd been a long time in that condition. Verse 8, Jesus tells him, pick up, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now here is the kicker. Now it was a Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered and said to them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And then verse 18 Again, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. All right, so kind of a a hard thing here. Was Jesus really breaking the Sabbath? I know it says, verse 18, he was breaking the Sabbath, but I think there's a way to understand this where what, what I get out of this is he's breaking their version of the Sabbath. And here's why I say that. As Jesus talks again about this in chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. And I think this is a really important clarification Jesus gives as he gives a reason for why he's doing what he's doing. So verse 21, after the Jews are again accusing him of, you know, even having a demon. Verse 21, he says, Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Was Jesus really breaking the Sabbath? Is circumcising someone on the Sabbath breaking the Sabbath? 
here's the idea. I'm going to go back to the first point here. Jesus consistently challenged human traditions that were treated as doctrine. Jesus consistently exposed the fact that the Jews had a view of the Sabbath that was overly strict. And I don't think that was, that's not something that originated from bad intentions. Many of their extra laws they had came because they wanted to be very, very careful with their practices that were very important. Remember, what was the consequence of violating the Sabbath? It was a death penalty. So, of course, that's to be taken very seriously. God said, don't work on the Sabbath. Well, now that makes it kind of difficult where you've got to think through things Jesus was doing at his ministry. I want to bring up some other points Jesus made as he again appealed to sound reason and scriptural precedent. Matthew 12, when the disciples are plucking heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath, and he's falsely accused there as well. He says, have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? On the Sabbath day, do the priests just stop working? Does the temple shut down? When someone comes with an animal sacrifice, they say, it's the Sabbath. You know, temple's not running today. No, think about it logically. There's a precedent for this. The priests are working What's the nature of their work? What are they doing? Jesus would also say, my father is working. He would also say things like this. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? They wouldn't answer his question. Luke 13, Jesus says, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? He's appealing to sound reason. Think about what you do Think about what I'm doing and the precedent for it. Chapter 14, verse 3, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Again, they wouldn't answer his question. And he again says, which of you will have a son or ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? Jesus is, is appealing to three things here. And I think it encapsulates communication. He's appealing to scriptural precedent. He's, a, he's appealing to examples, not only in their culture, but from the word of God and implications He's trying to help them think through the reasonable implications. The law did not say, hey, it's lawful for the priest to work on the Sabbath. The law did not say when the Messiah comes and performs miracle miracles on the Sabbath, hey, don't worry about that. That's actually lawful. They needed to be reasonable. They needed to put the pieces together and think through implications. And that's oftentimes what we have to do in studying the Bible is put things together, be reasonable, But again, make sure that what we're doing is really restricted within the boundaries of what's communicated in God's word. Uh, There's an importance to this that I want to emphasize by an illustration. It's something very simple. There's a sweet older lady in Minnesota, Miss Walker. Uh, She's nearly in her 90s now. And something she said to me more than anything else she's ever said, and she's repeated a few things to me through the years, but she's talked to me about her conversion uh, so many times. Her children became Christians before her. She was a uh, stubborn Lutheran. And what she's told me over and over again is her son would constantly come to her and say, I can read about my church in the Bible. Can you? As simple as that. He would just say that over and over again. They talk about the Bible. They talk about the truth. And he would just leave the conversation saying, look, mom, I can read about the church I attend and what we do in the Bible. Can you read about the church you're attending and what they're doing? Can you read about that in the Bible? And eventually... That got through to her. What he was doing was just appealing to sound reason as scriptural precedent. And to a good-hearted person, 
that will matter. That will convict them. One more thing that I think is important to consider here, chapter 9, verse 16, as Jesus, I think, was very deliberate in challenging the Pharisees' view of the Sabbath, in this chapter, he also heals someone on the Sabbath, and he makes clay. He spits in the clay, makes clay, and uh uh-oh, seems like work, puts it on the guy's eyes, tell him to go off and wash. And if you look at chapter 9, verse 16, what did the Pharisees think about this? Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such shines? And there was a division among them. We have to be really careful with labels at times, right? Uh, The impression I get from examples like this is Jesus would have been considered a dangerous liberal in his culture. You know, we have rules about the Sabbath and these rules are safe. We're, We're told not to work. Jesus is working. This man's a sinner. We have to be careful with the reality that as we try to, I think, rightfully be very strict with God's word, be really careful. We need to be careful. We need to take doctrine very seriously. But we also need to be open to being challenged. And we need to be careful. We don't think, oh, you're challenging this. This this is not something to be challenged or talked about or questioned. This is just the way we do things, and that's just the safe thing to do. We need to be reflective, reasonable. We can't prove from the Bible a certain conclusion we're coming to. You know, it may very well be that we're just, we're being too strict about something and need to give way for a little more liberty. And that may not be a dangerously liberal thing, but really the more conservative thing. Because think here in chapter 9, who cared more about real biblical authority? Jesus or the Pharisees? But what did the Pharisees think, right? So sometimes if someone is willing to challenge conclusions, it may seem like they're being, you know, a troublemaker. Maybe they're the more conservative one because they're wanting to be really careful that we're not just doing things by rote tradition that don't come from the Bible, but they actually want to be really careful to challenge our conclusions that we're coming to. A person can challenge conclusions with a bad attitude, but I guarantee you, as I've seen again and again, that will be borne out over time. When someone asks questions and is willing to challenge conclusions, the first assumption is not that they're going off the deep end. That's something that will be borne out over time. A person can challenge things with a good attitude, and if they don't have a good attitude, that will certainly become clear as we talk. Chapter 8, 43 through 45. So in this context, this is where Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I think the point he gets to here in 43 through 45, uh, later in the chapter than that statement, kind of helps clarify what he's meaning When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know, in reference to his crucifixion and why. Why would that demonstrate his authority and help people understand it better? Verse 43, chapter 8. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. All right. If we are not convicted, truly convicted of our sin, I cannot respect Jesus' authority. I cannot truly respect his authority. There's an obvious aspect to this, right? Like, obviously, we need to be aware of our sin. Obviously, that needs to matter to us. But Jesus was talking to religious people, a culture that, again, had very visceral examples of the consequence of sin and animal sacrifice that in Jerusalem they would have been very exposed to. 
but they weren't willing to let Jesus' word penetrate their hearts and humble them. A true conviction of sin leads to one conclusion, and it does relate very specifically to authority. My thoughts, my ways, as they are independent from God's authority, what the cross reveals is they are self-destructive and counterproductive. You know, when I'm clinging to a way of thinking that does not align with Jesus, the teaching of the apostles, it's not just that that's unwise or okay. What the cross shows is that the, the gap between my will, independent from God, and God's will, it is an indescribably large chasm between those things. They are in opposition to one another. So if I really understand the reality of my sin as Jesus conveys it, then where does that lead me? Then I want God to change my whole way of thinking, how I think about everything. I want to be careful that anything I do is not disconnected from God's authority. I want to make sure I'm pleasing God, that I'm not acting independent from God. And again, there's, there's a carefulness to this. I want to know the word of God. And I want to know for a certainty that what I'm doing is pleasing to God as what Jesus said in John 14. Another angle of this is we cannot retain sinful desire. And I think we need to think really personally about this. You know, the people here were talking directly to Jesus, hearing his words, and he's saying, you can't hear me because you want to do the desires of your father, the devil. We can hear God's word and we can quietly retain sinful desires that other people are not able to keep us accountable to. Has God said something? Has God said something? that you are con- you are quietly trying to ignore or that you are quietly outright rejecting or that's something you just you just outright don't want to do it you don't want to change your thinking about something you don't want to change your values or maybe there's just something you find a lot of comfort in and you enjoy a lot but you know if you brought God's judgment into it that would just it would have to change and you either would have to modify your approach or completely get rid of that thing if you are not willing to bring God's authority into the quietness of what no one else can see, you really don't understand God's authority. If there are desires that you're holding onto that you are not willing to bring God's word into, you can't fully appreciate God's authority. It will always be something superficial and shallow, and it cannot be what it was to Jesus and what he demands that it is to us. We cannot retain sinful desire and still think we have a true respect for God's authority. Chapter 12, 42 through 43. <clears throat> so again, these are uh, related to Jesus' conclusive statements where in the reading that Paul read, Jesus is focusing on the individual. He's calling out the individual. He uses a lot of statements like anyone or he who. Look at 42 and 43 leading up to this. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved the approval of men rather the approval of God. Listen, my opinion, I'm a poor judge of things I don't know, but from my experience, I feel pretty certain about this, that when I'm studying the Bible with people, this is the issue why they don't change their mind about things the Bible is clearly teaching is that to truly respect Jesus' authority, I need to seek him apart from the crowds. Did you know in John's gospel, the crowds never understand Jesus' teaching? 
and they never come to the right conclusions. They're either they're always either confused or outright mistaken. There's one exception, just one, and that's in John chapter four with the Samaritans. And I think there's meant to be a deliberate irony in John's gospel that the Samaritans, who were like dogs to the Jews, Jesus spends time with them. They understand he's the savior of the world. He continues to teach them and goes on his way. And yet whenever he's with Jewish crowds, it's always friction, misunderstanding, or they're gravely mistaken. To truly respect Jesus' authority, I have to seek him apart from the crowds. Here's how I think this becomes very personal, even for us and our children. A person cannot truly know Jesus if they only ask the questions that they're asked by others. If they only ever think about subjects that they're exposed to in sermons at assemblies, if they only believe only what they're being told by others, if they're only basing their conclusions on their environment and not by digging deep themselves into the word of God. Where I was when I was younger, I appeared sound. I attended assemblies and I had, I think, a conviction of sound doctrine on some level. But really, I was just going with the crowd in the environments I grew up in. And really, my faith did not become truly my own until I started reading the Bible on my own and being exposed to the word of God on subjects I had never heard before, reading books of the Bible I had never heard taught before, seeing subjects dealt with in the Bible that were dismissed too readily by people even around me. There's so many things the Bible teaches. There's a way of thinking that Jesus advocates that demands we think for ourselves and we have to learn to take it so seriously where we're not just going with the crowd, even if everyone in the crowd is right, even if the church, every individual is thriving and zealous, even in that environment, it has to become personal. What we cover at assemblies can never accomplish what personal digging can only accomplish. Faith must become personal. And what I expect when I study with people is that they've got to believe in Jesus apart from the crowd. I don't care what someone's pastor tells them. I don't care what their church practices. What matters is what the Bible teaches, right? We've got to have that same attitude as well, or like the earlier points. We ourselves have to be willing to question things, not from a bad attitude, but just making sure that what we're doing is really biblical. All right. Lastly, chapter 14, and this will be the concluding point here. Chapter 14, 23 through 24. And this is more of a a positive statement Jesus makes to his disciples in, in, again, what is a personal conversation. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. The words which you hear, the word you hear, uh, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Simply, I cannot truly respect Jesus' authority unless I truly love him. And I want to advocate again a biblical idea of what Jesus means here. He doesn't just mean a feeling, you know, that I've heard about Jesus, I feel towards Jesus that I love him. What Jesus is saying is the culmination of everything that we've talked about so far. That this is something that's taken very personally. The idea is this. How do you learn to love someone? You spend time with them. We need to be experts of the gospel. You know, when things are repeated in the Bible, that's a big deal. There's only one event in the Old Testament repeated three times. It's when Hezekiah and Jerusalem were surrounded by the Assyrians. It's repeated three times. 
To me, that means it's a really big deal. There's something really important about that, that event. In the New Testament, there's not much that's in terms of events repeated over and over again, but the Gospels, there's four of those. There's four Gospels. Why are there four Gospels? Because we need to know Jesus. So I want to ask you this. When's the last time on your own, not in a group study, not with anyone else, when's the last time you read the Gospel? When's the last time you chose a Gospel and you read it from beginning to end and you had the attitude to have an obedience-oriented mentality? Or you were looking for things that Jesus does and looking for things he says and you were wanting to be better equipped to serve him by reading it. When's the last time you dug deep on your own? There is something, again, about a personal study like that that is not the same as reading someone talking about Jesus or making points from Jesus. You know, I don't just want to hear people talk about Eva Beth, my wife. I don't just want to be around Eva in group settings. I want to talk directly to my wife. I want to spend personal time with my wife. And yet so easily we don't do that with God. You know, we don't just want to sit down and sacrifice time to read the Bible on our own. We just want answers from others and read commentaries and lesson books. Again, I'm just trying to advocate. We need to read the gospel. We need to be experts of the gospel. We learn to admire Jesus when we think about Jesus on our own. We meditate on his works, his miracles, his death and resurrection. We need to know the gospel in a deeply personal way. That's when authority truly matters to us. That's the lesson. Um, as I've been doing, I would like to say a prayer to end the lesson. Um, but before that, uh, I just want to encourage you that if you are here and you recognize that there is some issue in your relationship with God, separation between you and the authority of God, make that right. You know, if, if that's coming forward before the saints and, and confessing something that might feel hard and embarrassing, God be praised for that. And that will be very strengthening. We need to be honest with each other. We need to help each other through our faith. Let's say a prayer and we'll have the invitation song.